Uh, today's reading is from Matthew 19, uh, 13 to 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we come back to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we've been coming and going from Matthew over the last few years. And we're back here up till Easter. So let's pray for God's help as we look at this now. Father, we thank you that you speak by your Holy Spirit through your word into our lives. Thank you that you address us with all the things that we enjoy and struggle with today in the world around us. Help us to see what this means. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 16 in our reading on page 986, 986, do follow that with me. Verse 16, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Well, can there be a more important question? It's sometimes said that Christians believe just in pie in the sky when you die. And everyone else is actually concerned about living here and now. 
You know, what's the good of, it, of focusing on eternity when there's, there's so much to do here? But actually, that is the question that is behind the question the man is asking. It gets to the heart of the, the biggest questions any human being will ask about life and the world we live in. Because when we do focus on the world around us, and we want to make a difference, or, or, or we even just want to enjoy the life and the opportunities and the gifts that we've been given, we find in this world that we live in, it so often doesn't work like that. It is so often broken and full of pain and sadness and disappointment and frustration and sin, ways that we hurt and are hurt by one another. And so this question about eternal life is also a question about the kingdom of God, which is something Jesus talks again and again about, uh, again and again about through the Gospel of Matthew, that he's come to bring God's kingdom. And he even uses that term later in the reading when he talks about the rich entering the kingdom of heaven. It's all the same thing. And actually that is the Bible's answer to that question as we look at the world around us and we see how frustrating and sad and disappointing it is and how full of pain and sorrow it is, the Bible's answer, Jesus' answer is, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God has come in Jesus. And it will come finally when he returns. It won't always be like this. And so that question... How can I get eternal life is a question of how can I be part of that perfect kingdom to come in contrast with this imperfect world that we are part of now. And the second way that, that question is so relevant is more personal maybe. Because actually death itself, despite what our world around us tries to do, death itself is not something that we can ignore. It is part of what is wrong with the world. But it's also the reality all of us are going to have to face. 100% of us, one in one, will face. Unless Jesus returns, first of all, one in one will die. So, is there a more important question than the question of where we spend eternity? We're breaking back into this slow walk through Matthew's Gospel that we have been doing over a number of years. Um, and it's worth just reminding ourselves what's going on. Matthew doesn't explicitly tell us why he's written the book, but you can get a sense from how it ends. So the book ends with what we call the Great Commission. Jesus commissioning his disciples to go into all the world and make more disciples. And so there are three main concerns in this book as we go through it. There's the question of who is this Jesus? What kind of authority does he have to order people around? Um, what is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And beyond that, what does it mean to be a disciple who makes more disciples, as he's going to command his disciples to do once he's died and risen from the dead and he commissions them at the end of the gospel? So that, that's the kind of basic framework for the whole book that this sort of fits into. You can divide up the book in a number of ways, particularly in terms of uh, chapters of teaching and chapters of action. We see that through the book. 
Um, and having had some teaching about Christian discipleship in community in chapter 18, we're kind of back into action, even though Jesus is mostly talking in this section. It's kind of in response to what people are saying, and there's things happening, and movement. Um, and the headline that stands over all of this section in these chapters is back in chapter 16, verse 24, which I'll put on the screen. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So what is happening in these chapters, as we head through these chapters to where Jesus is in, uh, goes to the cross, what we're seeing is, first of all, what it means to follow him as a disciple. But then as we, as we follow him, we then see there is an increasing sense of conflict that this provokes with the religious leaders who don't agree with Jesus' teaching about himself and others, which, which leads in the end to Jesus dying on the cross. So that gives us a bit of sort of orientation for where we are, what's going on as we jump back in, chapter 19. Um, here is this man's question again. As we think about what it means to be a disciple, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Here's his question. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? And this answer that we then hear, uh, if, we were, if we were paying attention when we heard the reading, how can we avoid hearing the challenge? of what he is saying. It's deeply challenging. We need to think about what it's saying, what it means. And you can sum it up like this in our first heading. What does it mean to, to follow Jesus? And to, how do I get eternal life? Bring nothing, give up everything, and follow Jesus. Verses 13 to 21. That's the first thing to see here. So this answer that Jesus gives to this vital question is, is summed up in, in the final verse of the whole reading, verse 30. Did you see that? Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And that's essentially what we have in these verses. First of all, we have um, someone who looks like they're first, but before that, in verses 13 to 15, we have some people who look like they're last. Do you see that? So we have the children. And let's be clear, you know, this is not a world back then of kind of child-centered parenting, child-centered education, child-centered world. That is entirely alien to a first century worldview. Uh, children are, you know, not even really proper human beings in that world. And so no wonder when the people are bringing children for Jesus to pray for them, the disciples are trying to kind of usher them away. You know, don't bother the, the great teacher. Don't bother the great teacher with children. He's got places to go. He's got people to see. But Jesus is clear. Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And it's a shock. But the point is that we need to see the contrast between what Jesus says about children and what he says to the rich man, who in that culture is absolutely the guy that you would expect Jesus to be pleased to meet and to honor and to respect. And maybe this is a bit more familiar today. Now, we, we, we're a bit more surprised by the children, but, or, or not, you know, or, or sort of trying to push children away. That doesn't make quite so much sense in our world today. But there is still the idea in our culture today that if you've got money, people ought to listen to you. Isn't that right? So, you know, if you ever meet someone, and, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but you, you meet someone and you know, this person is absolutely loaded. 
you know, they're some kind of multimillionaire or whatever. And, and you might not want it to feel different, but it probably does make you feel slightly different and make you sort of want to act differently around them. And you kind of worry more about what that person thinks of you versus what some other person who isn't quite so rich thinks of you. Okay, and so there is still that sense of what wealth does to you. And the point here is to realize when it comes to eternal life, to entering the kingdom of God that Jesus is offering, step one is to realize you bring nothing. Which is not how, how we do things, whether back then or here and now. You know, if you give an adult a gift, what happens? You know, the way we often respond is, oh, I haven't got you anything. You know, I, I feel bad, I better return the favour. If you give a small child a gift, what happens? Well, they just take it. You, you, you even have to, to teach them to say thank you because basically all they can do is receive because they have nothing to offer. That's the point. And the point is that that is a model for how we receive what Jesus is offering. But contrast that with the rich man who is desperate to prove that he belongs and he deserves. Teacher, what must I do, he says. What must I do? There must be something I can do to kind of prove that I deserve to receive eternal life. And what do you make of Jesus' response then? Is it a little bit puzzling, a little bit harsh? He seems to be quibbling rather. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. So the rich man's right, right, okay, which ones then? Let's, let's get down to business. And Jesus gives him some of the commandments, the ones that we were thinking about with David earlier. And they're from the second half of the Ten Commandments, if you look. And he summarizes them at the end as love your neighbor as yourself. And the man's response is robust, isn't it? He says, yes, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. So what does he mean? Well, he's effectively saying, keeping the commandments you claim you have kept isn't actually enough. Can you see He's highlighted what we call the sort of second half of the Ten Commandments, but he has left one out. And because David tested them, I'm sure we've all got it on the tip of our tongue. But he's left out, do not covet. He's left out the one about wanting lots and lots of stuff. And so Jesus is, by putting his finger on the one that really matters for this guy. And, so he, and he's showing him. Keeping the commandments isn't actually enough. And that's where this initial response that he gave, that there is only one who is good, that's where this comes in. Because what he's saying to the man is, however good you think you are, you are never actually good enough. And that's for the man here, it's because despite his outwardly upright life, his ability to keep most of the rules, as it were, he still actually lacks what really matters. He lacks the willingness to put Jesus first and say Jesus is number one. 
See, what the man has not understood is that heaven is not something we can have on our own terms. So it's not a reward for good behavior. It's not a pension pot for long service. If you want to receive eternal life, Jesus says, you need to turn your back on everything else, even your wealth, your achievements, your agenda for your life. If you want to receive eternal life, you need to follow Jesus. And that isn't a matter of keeping the rules. It's a matter of what is the number one priority in our life. Is it Jesus or is it, for example, money? Now, Jesus singles out wealth here for this man. And the man's response shows he was right to do that. For the man... Money was his bottom line. He was prepared to go so far with this Jesus guy, but when Jesus started making comments about his wallet, he walked away. My money, my life, no one can tell me what to do. And it's important to say, isn't it, the person who does that could be the person who is completely loaded and wants to hold on to that. It could also be the person who wants to be completely loaded, but doesn't have any money at all, but is still obsessed with it. It can still work either way, can't it? And we read this today, and we might think, wow, you know, this is, this is really challenging. And then the preacher reminds us, it's okay, Jesus didn't say this to everyone. You know, it's the disciples, it's clear, the disciples carried on owning property. This isn't some kind of proto-communism. And uh, the preacher might go on, you know, there's, there's other things that, uh, that might be very different things for each of us. You know, it could be power and status and what others think of us. It could be a particular relationship that we're putting above Jesus. And we each need to figure out what that is for us. What are we putting in front of Jesus? And we hear that and we think, oh, phew. Because I was beginning to worry there. And I'm delighted to hear that holding on to my wealth might be okay after all. That there is a kind of loophole, a way of wriggling out of this. But there is a problem there, isn't there? Because the point is, as other people have said in the past, those who are most relieved to hear that Jesus didn't issue this instruction to everyone he met are probably those who most need to hear it. Do you think that might be true? Now, the question then is, well, what, do we, what does that mean then? Well, this is about attitudes, isn't it? So we could talk about Christian giving. It's important to do that, to, to think about that. Christian giving takes many forms. Uh, we often point out we, we don't take a collection at St. John's, but we, you know, we do rely on the generous giving of church members to fund the ministry of the whole church with all that that means, and there's info about that on the, on the notice sheet at the very bottom of that, if you look at that. But I'm not going to stand here and give us a list of exactly what it means for you or me not to love money more than Jesus. Because actually, that's what the man wanted, isn't it? That is what he wanted. He wanted to be told, tell me the, 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 the rules, tell me the things I must do so I can tick the box and carry on with life on my terms. And if Jesus had said, oh, what, look, look, rich man, if you, give, if you give 10%, no, actually, if you give 30%, then, you know, you're fine. 
everything's great and you can carry on. That isn't what Jesus said, because if he'd given the man that kind of instruction, the man would have been able to say, yeah, great, I can, I can cope with 30%, you know, I've still got 70 for myself, so I can carry on. But that isn't what he does, is it? He puts his finger on the fact that actually, when it comes down to it, the man will not put Jesus as his number one priority in his life. And so each of us have to figure out what does it mean for, to, to have Jesus as number one with whatever we have been given. You see, it could, you could put it like this. It's about attitude. It's about saying, is Jesus just the icing on the cake in life? Or is he the cake? That's the point. You know, he hasn't come to be a kind of appendix, a useful add-on to an otherwise self-driven, self-focused life in the pursuit of pleasure. He's come to be right at the centre because that's who he is. The God who made everyone and everything. He, made, he became man. And so whoever we are, this is a deeply challenging message to all of us to say, who's at the, who's at the center? Who is controlling? Who is Lord in our lives? Is it me or is it the Lord Jesus? Because that's what it means to follow him. Before we finish then, we have two objections considered. And the first, is this possible? Because it just sounds crazy. The second, is this worth it? Why would anyone who had the opportunity to live for wealth and enjoy it not do that? Well, we can see the second and third heading then. Yes, it's possible. First of all, verses 22 to 26. Yes, it's possible. The man, what does he do? He goes away sad. He has great wealth. And that word sad is so telling, isn't it? You see, he, he can't give up his wealth. And you might think, well, at least, at least he'll be happy then. At least he can go and sort of enjoy himself. But no, that, that isn't what happens when you live for your wealth. Because it just creates that sense of, I can't let this go, but I'm still utterly miserable. It's like the billionaire uh, J.D. Rockefeller. You know, he was asked, how much is enough? And his response was, just a little bit more. You know, we never have enough, but we can't give it up, even for Jesus. And that's why Jesus says these famous words. He says, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel, there's a camel, to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this, this image of a camel and, you know, a needle, that's the eye of a needle, you know, that's the tiny little bit at the top that you put your, 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 your cotton thread through if you're doing some sewing. It's so ridiculous that people have tried to kind of think, oh, we, there must be, it must be sort of metaphor going on here, there's something going on. So people have tried to say, you know, oh, no, a camel's a type of rope. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that really helps because um, a rope is also hard to get through an eye of a needle. Um, or they say, oh no, the, the needle was a gate in the wall in Jerusalem. 
Maybe you've heard this idea. And, and what had to happen was, in order to get through it, the camels had to take the packs off their back and kind of crawl through and get through. But, um, well, there's no evidence of any such gate, as far as I understand. No mention of that until about a 1,000 years later. But from, from the other things Jesus says here, is what Jesus is trying to say. Is he trying to say, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God, but if you really try hard, you might do it? Or is he saying it's impossible? Well, what do the disciples think? Can you see this? They think it's impossible. They say, well, who then can be saved? You see, the point is, you can be a Christian who has plenty of money, but what does money do? It gives the sense of security and safety, and so it becomes the thing that we depend on when the Christian should be depending on God. That's what the Christian is. That's why it's so dangerous. Because when things go wrong, if you haven't got any money and things go wrong, what else can you do but pray and trust and rely on God? And if you've been through those, that sort of experience, you know, actually that, that can be a one, an amazing blessing to have the experience of needing to just say, I, I can't solve this. I'm trusting God and then finding that he responds to that, that, that prayer. But it's dangerous, isn't it? Because if actually there is money in the bank account and something goes wrong, what we just think is, oh, it's, it's fine. I can, I can pay. I can fix it. It'll, it'll be okay. I've got this. I'm in control. Do you see? That's why Jesus is saying it is hard because it so easily stops us from depending on him, which is what we were made and designed to do. And of course, actually, the flip side is true as well, and this is important to see. If we don't love money, we may still love money more than Jesus. Sorry, if we don't have money, if we don't have money, we may still love money more than Jesus. And so when things go wrong, actually, it doesn't make us pray and depend on God. It just makes us go, oh no, I don't have any money, and despair. Either way, we don't depend on God. And so no wonder the disciples look at each other and say, who then can be saved? This sounds absolutely impossible because we're all like this. And so Jesus looks at them and said, well, with man, this is impossible. You see that? With man, this is impossible because of what the human heart is like. But with God, all things are possible. And the power to let go of our love of money or our love of whatever it is that is replacing God in our affections, actually that power is not going to come from us, but from God. So what do we do then? We ask him for it. And we confess that, what you might call that disordered love, where we're loving something else instead of God, we confess that to him. Because he promises he can change us. Now, actually, this is, what, this is precisely the sort of thing we're talking about and thinking about in this real change course that, we, that many of us are doing with the small groups. And anyone's welcome, as Alex was saying. We're thinking about this concept of heat, which is often the, the, the things that go wrong that we struggle with. Heat can also, for some, though, be the things that go right. 
and that make us go, oh, I'm okay, and I don't need to depend on God. So maybe it's the love of wealth and money and reliance on that, which we might be wise to focus on in that course. And, you know, do join us for that session two in 10 days' time if you missed session one. With man, this is impossible. We can't do this. We can't change ourselves. But with God, it is possible. And if we want to enter life, we need to stop relying on ourselves and what we have and rely on God, on Jesus, and trust in him. So, yes, it's possible. Confess your sin, put your trust in Jesus. Final objection, is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. Verses 27 to 30. Maybe we can empathize with Peter's question in verse 27. Well, if it's this difficult to enter the kingdom of God, have we left everything for nothing? The basic message here that Jesus then gives as he responds is that the benefits of following Jesus far outweigh the cost. But this isn't just about pie in the sky when you die. This is about the topsy-turvy nature of life in God's kingdom, where the first are last and the last first, as he puts it in verse 30. That, that is the, the, the extraordinary truth that Christians find. That actually, we think, yeah, but if I give up all that stuff, that's going to make me miserable. No, we find it's the other way around. We find actually clinging on to all that stuff, that very often makes us miserable. Putting Jesus first and saying, I'm going to follow him, it might mean that you lose things that you thought were precious, that once were precious. Even as, you know, as he puts it here, if you look, you know, even having family, even family and friends distance themselves from you because of your faith. That, that could happen. Sometimes it does happen. Maybe foregoing what could be yours for the sake of giving to God's work in his kingdom. You know, Jesus is saying, even though following Jesus may mean losing all those things, the gains can be extraordinary. The joy of a new Christian family, the richness of fellowship, friendship, new family with those who believe in Jesus. Even when all of that is mixed with persecution and suffering, as it often is, Christians know this is worth it. Hudson Taylor was the founder of what is now OMF, the Overseas Missionary Fellowship. And he suffered hugely in his attempts to bring the gospel to mainland China in the 19th century. But at the end of his life, he said this. He said, I never made a sacrifice. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't literally mean sell your house and you'll get a hundred more or whatever. But ultimately, ultimately, he means... That in him, you will find more than you will ever miss by giving up all those other things that aren't him. Do we believe that? That's what he's saying. That's what he's promising. And that is most true when it comes to eternal life. He talks just in passing about his followers sitting on thrones. Do you see this? Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's about his followers becoming the new Israel, the new people of God, over against the old Israel with its leaders that Jesus is going to be increasingly in conflict with in these chapters. And this is just, just a reminder, even as he says this, that as he holds out this vision of discipleship, 
of taking up your cross and following him, where are we following him to? We're following him to the cross. So even as he holds out the benefits of, of following him, it is very clear that that is going to be a road that goes through suffering. He doesn't tone that down. But the point is, that's okay once you realize if you've got Jesus, you've got everything you need. So what's it going to be then? As we hear this extraordinary invitation to this topsy-turvy kingdom where the first are last and the last are first, where we must bring, uh, bring nothing, give up everything, and follow Jesus, put him number one, what are we going to do? Turn away in sadness or follow him in joy? Let's just have a moment of quiet to reflect on our response to that and then I'll lead us in prayer. With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Father, as we hear this deeply challenging message, help us to hear the invitation to confess where we're still holding on to things and putting them above you, to confess that, to ask for your forgiveness. And to see how glorious Jesus is, how he is far more glorious and wonderful than any wealth or anything else that this world can offer. As, as good as those things are, praise you for Jesus, that if we have him, we have all we need. And so, Father, would you change our hearts by your Holy Spirit? And help us daily to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow King Jesus as we come empty-handed, not boasting in anything in ourselves, but boasting only in Jesus. Thank you that you receive us like little children who have nothing to offer. And you promise us life in that world to come, the kingdom where Jesus is king. And we get to see him face to face. Keep our eyes on him and on that, we pray. Amen. Amen.